electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now and fast, the Fed drops the big one, hikes rates 75 basis points, the biggest increase in nearly 30 years. And Powell says another three-quarter point hike isn't off the table for July. What did the market do? It rallied. We'll break it all down with former Dallas Fed President Richard Fisher and our traders. Plus, Chair Powell's advice to millennials thinking about buying a home right now and the potential ripple effect it could have on the housing sector. And later, Biden's big oil battle. The president calls on the nation's refiners and energy companies to pump and produce more, saying their profits are coming at the expense of consumers. What impact will this fight have on the crude complex? I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. On the desk tonight, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Steve Gross. And we start off with that right rate hike heard around the world. The Federal Reserve raising its target rate by 75 basis points. That is the most aggressive increase in 28 years. Major averages rallying across the board in response, but finishing well off, uh, I should say, off-session highs. The S&P up almost a percent and a half. The Dow added over 300 points, both snapping five-day losing streaks. The tech-heavy Nasdaq led the way, up more than 2.5%. Meantime, the bond market taking a breather despite the rate hike yields on the 10-year Treasury, pulling back a day after touching an 11-year high. So was the Fed able to get it right? Guy. Well, in terms of the communication, Mel, I think they got it right. Absolutely. We had a pretty robust conversation on Monday, and then Steve came in and his reporting suggested they would do exactly this. And I think across the desk, we said this is what's necessary. And I know Tim said it, and we talked about it earlier today, the market will probably rally on the back of that. And, and I'll say this, given the selling we've seen over the last, obviously, month or so, given that it's gotten to a lot of our price targets, the S&P, I would submit that given the language we heard and given the setup, this market can rally probably another 7 or 8% from here before we have another conversation. So I think in the short term, they got it right, needed to be done. I'm so happy they didn't take the, the easy way out and do 50. Mm-hmm. 75 was necessary, required, and it was a first, to me, is a step in the right direction. It feels as if what the markets had expected or wanted in terms of the Fed being much more aggressive than the Fed had previously stated, the gap actually closed today, Tim, in terms of what the markets expected and what the Fed plans to do. And that's a big thing when it comes to managing volatility. And you can see where Fed fund futures have, have also, as we get to year end, have moved around over the last couple of days. We're now down at we're at 340. We were up around 365. But the sense of you know where we want the Fed to go, why 74 or more actually means more in terms of equities. And, and we were so oversold coming into this. Uh, if you think about it, the Nasdaq on a five day from the uh, essentially the intraday highs to the lows, uh, where before we started to put in a little bit of a rally yesterday, uh, you know I think 13 percent S and P 11 percent. If you look at the Treasury market, even more oversold, 70 basis points on 10 years, 50 on two years in three sessions. So uh, the bond market more oversold rallies a bit today and the equity market. And, and, you know, this this reaction to the Fed was really uh, in a world where I refer to that the reaction from 2 p.m. to the close is the Fed cha-cha-cha. Uh, we may or may not have that chart, but uh, you had seven moves of one percent up or down, plus or minus one uh, percent. 
to the close. And it was just an extraordinary rally, uh, actually closed well off the highs. Uh, and I do think equities take some relief. And six of the last Fed meetings in the last year, you've actually seen a rally in markets, an aggressive rally in many cases. And I think uh, the, whether you get that six to nine percent rally that we saw in January and March, markets are set up for relief. So oversold, mm-hmm. so beleaguered. Treasures were positioned this way. I think this was the dirty little secret that they were going to rally it hard. That's probably why they didn't rally it on the highs. Yeah, the 75 basis points today, plus putting 75 on the table, Karen, that feels like that was also important in terms of paving the way for the markets to gain some footing and actually perhaps move higher over the next month or so. Right. I think both of those were really important, but also important thing was the change where the committee thinks the Fed fund rates will be not just at the end of this year, which is substantially higher, but the end of next year and the end of 24. The longer term rate didn't really change, but the, the enormous change between uh, one, I don't know, nine or so to the 3.4. Yeah, that's the chart that to me is the most important. If you see the Fed just really getting a very different picture out there today, where they in March. So that's really important. So it's not surprising the market would would rally on that in that if the Fed is sort of, you know, very aggressive about exercising, exorcising inflation, if that's possible, then that's a good thing for the market. It'd be painful in the short term. You know, we've talked about the Fed sort of sacrificing as a as a byproduct, not lower. And I think also that's what's happening with um, the talk about the housing market. Right. So if, if they're going to be dumping mortgage backs, right, they, you know, think having more mortgage backs to go probably wouldn't be a good thing. And I think cooling down the housing market is a not a desired effect, but a necessary one to really contain inflation. Many of our traders, many of you guys on the show have been saying for a long time that the Fed should be more aggressive, that we should rip the Band-Aid off, that 75 should, in fact, be on the table. So I'll go to you, Mr. Recession, Steve Grosso. If you think that that scenario is the most likely still, given the, the apparent change in stance of the Fed today. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't think that what he did today. Uh, I, see, I, I take a different stance. I think he lost credibility. So when he says we're credible but conditional, then they're not credible because you can't be credible. You can't say something but change under the, a different condition. So they should just say they're conditional. It has nothing to do with being credible. So they've lost credibility, in my opinion, because they said 75 was off the table. Then they raised by 75. So if he says 50 to 75 is what should be expected, and then the next time we raise by a full percentage point, what's the point of, of dots, plots, and all can, forecasts? Can I ask a question, though? And so, of course, I, the answer is yes, I can ask a question. I'm raising my hand just for dramatic effect. But does it really sure. matter, Steve, that, that the <laughs> Fed has lost credibility? At this point... Don't the markets want to hear that the Fed will respond to conditions as necessary and that that one change today is the most important thing. And so, therefore, it does credibility, whatever. This is what the markets want. This is what the markets need to go higher. The the markets didn't need say if we're going to really give the market what the market needed, he probably needed to raise over a percent. And I, I think that when you look at the no one could agree on what the neutral rate is. No one could agree on what the terminal rate is. The markets didn't need 50. They don't need 75. They probably need much more than one. So he doesn't have the ability nor the stomach to give the markets what they what they want. And to give the markets what they want, Melissa, is to give the economy a recession. 
And I've said it before. If the Fed fails, then you're, you, you will have you won't have a recession. If he gets to where he has to be, you'll have a recession. That simple. The two things that hit me, if inflation comes down 2%, we've never avoided a recession. If unemployment goes up by a half a percent, we've never avoided a recession. So I, I think a recession is inevitable and we'll still be chasing our tail here. And by the way, anything he does won't have anything to do with food or energy. And I've been well, tweeting about this for the last couple of I, weeks. Slash I, that's, an, that's where I was going to go, because there's an interesting point in the press conference where he says there really isn't a difference between headline and core. And I'm going to paraphrase here um, because it's the expectation and, and, you know, gas prices and food prices are very important guy. The fact of the matter is, is it was basically an acknowledgement that there is no control over some of the aspects of inflation. And so therefore we can cheer that the Fed is going to be very aggressive, but we can still have the problem of higher rates plus still persistently pesky inflation down the road. Wow, it sounds uh, you're channeling your inner G Swizz right there. You're just like you're in my head as you tend to be. You're listen, uh, spot on. Now the next conversation is now what's the inevitability for the market? And I think Tim said it. I think Steve probably feels this way on the technicals. I'm sure Karen feels this way. I do think we're set up for a decent little bounce here. But the problems of the market have not been solved. Companies are starting to lay off. Profit margins will come down. Earnings will come down, all by definition. I mean, that's just almost inevitable. I have no idea if we're in a recession, going to recession. I think for what we do here on the show, I don't necessarily think it matters in trying to handicap the market. But I think to your point, the things that are uh, ailing the market, they did not at all go away today. Uh, Tim, in terms of the, the setup for this nice bounce, does this mean that the bond market is tamed? Does this mean that the 10-year yield goes down? What does the, what does the yield curve look like? Does, do we invert? Well, it's certainly at the moments this week where we had our, our greatest fear and we had our greatest inflation scares or reactions to them, we, we inverted. We actually steepened up a little bit today. I think uh, the moves in the bond market were a little extreme. Some of this also, you know, this was a week where every central bank and their brother had a meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, ECB showed a little bit of teeth uh, while also really running for cover on how do we deal with Italy. I think some of this played into our bond, mar our bond market as well. Uh, I'm not going to make a call on where we settle in. And I'll say ultimately for equities, I think I think when bond yields stop moving higher, equities can start to move higher. But the, the conditions in which we moved and how quickly we moved, I do think, uh, is about catching up and getting ahead of at least market expectations. The bond market we, we've proven uh, and talked about this often will, will really, I think the Fed is not in control of the long end. Um, to some extent, they've even lost some control of the short end. Look at that move in the two-year, forced the, head, the Fed's hand, or really the Fed followed through and did what the two-year had already done. So um, I, I guess I, I think about the context of markets more broadly. Broadly here, um, I actually think we've we've priced in uh, a lot of supply chain. We priced in a lot of geopolitics. We priced in a lot of margin pressure. Um, what the market's going to start to do and is doing is, is pricing in recession fears. We haven't even really gotten into earnings revisions. And, and then ultimately, if you have uh, dynamics where you really are talking about recession, the latter phases will be about credit and about liquidity. So there are phases to all of this. Uh, and we talk about levels on the market and getting down to 3,800 almost seemed necessary. Uh, we talk about these, these, these levels below 
if you're at 3250, you're at that 38% Fibonacci retracement. If you're at 3000, you're at levels that the S&P uh, really was at before it rallied aggressively into COVID. So there's a lot of different places here, but I think there's cycles to this market. And I think there are companies, you know, someone like a Home Depot, uh, we got some housing credit numbers today and just how much uh, value there are in homes around the country and how actually above water people are. There are companies you can trade here. All right. Let's get more on the Fed decision with CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Steve, um, what do you think, what do you walk away with as the, the, the most striking change in Fed Powell's, uh, Fed Chair Powell's tone today? Um, I think there's four things I would, I mm-hmm. would tell you. The first one is that uh, 75 base points is a bold statement that Powell and the Fed will do what needs to be done to control inflation. They haven't done that in a very long time. And he said we could do 50 or 75 next time. It won't be common, but it's out there as a tool. The second one is the Fed has left la-la land in terms of believing that it could get away uh, with solving this inflation problem with a little trimming around the edges. It's got the shears out and it's ready to whack, I guess is the best way to put it, when it comes to an overgrown bush of inflation in the economy. And the third is the Fed and the market now being in better sync when it comes to where we're all headed here. Somebody raised the interesting question. Did the Fed, I think it was Tim, did the Fed lead the market? Did the market lead the Fed? It doesn't matter. They're a little bit closer on where we're going. It's worth looking at what the outlook is right now. And the big, bold change, not the 75, but in the outlook, they went from 1.9 for a Fed forecast for this year to 3.4, and then they went next year to 3.8, almost a full percentage point up higher, or a full percentage point higher from where they were. So that's a big, big move by the median official or the median uh, uh, of Fed official forecast right there. I think that's really important. The fourth thing I think that is worth taking away, there's those uh, uh, forecasts right there, what what they did in terms of moving up the outlook much closer to where the market is right now. Uh, And the market actually came down a little bit today to where they were. The fourth thing, Melissa, is how uncertain the the Fed chair is about what actually needs to be done and whether or not he did say that the 3.8 as as the peak funds rate is within the plausible range of what's needed to get inflation. But he said it's very uncertain. And as you indicated earlier, very interesting that there's a lot of things about the inflation story that the Fed feels it can't do anything about. Uh, and I think it was interesting that there, the line of questioning from all of you reporters in the room w- was sort of along the line of, of you know, uh, is recession going to be on the table in that if you keep raising rates, knowing that there's a large part of inflationary pressures that, that will not be relieved by monetary policy, at some point, you know, it's not just a sledgehammer that, that the Fed is using. It's a bulldozer because you're basically going to kill demand by just whacking the consumer and rolling them into the ground um, because you cannot control those inflationary pressures of food and energy. And yet here we are on this hiking path. Oh, that, that, that's right. But, but you think about what the alternative is. Could we, what kind of economy would we have if we had monthly inflation at 8% or 9% every month? Uh, it, it, it is the counterfactual doesn't even matter at that point. You know, it's like, um, what is the alternative? The alternative is eight or nine percent inflation. That will almost certainly lead to a recession. I still think I'm the last guy out there, I think, that thinks we can skirt the recession here. And, and by that, I mean, if the Fed can get inflation down and it can end up at a four percent funds rate, I don't think that's the end of the world. I think we can have a normally functioning, growing economy at a 4% funds rate for at least a while while we get inflation down and then maybe ease back down to three. I think that's something we can do. And I'm going to embrace a bit of Powell's optimism on this, that it's still possible to do it. But I would say the outlook is less certain. 
I mean, 4%. We're so, we've been so spoiled by such low rates, Karen, that we forget that 4% is still historically low. So to Steve's point, maybe it is possible that we <laughs> go back to sort of a normally functioning economy. And recession isn't, it's not just we're on or we're off, basically, when it comes to economic growth. Uh-huh. I think that's right. But I also think for, just in terms of how the markets would react, yeah. I feel like markets really hate uncertainty. And are we, are we not in recession? That's kind of uncertainty the market doesn't like. And, and I know Tim uh, was you know, hoping for a, a sort of sharp, swift recession. I think that's actually better for the markets. I think you and I have talked about this as well. Is this the cure for the markets, a recession? Because then they would look forward and look through it and not be so uncertain about, well, are rates going to, you know, are, are, uh, is inflation going to come down? Are we going to be able to pass along prices? All of that. I think a recession actually is better for the markets. All right. Steve, thank you. Good to see uh, you, Can Steve I just Leeson. disagree with that? Uh, okay, go ahead. I, disagree. I'm sorry. Yes? I, I don't think <laughs> there's any situation where recession is better than the market. I'm not sure Karen really quite means that. I think, I think you I, have to try I to do. avoid it. No, no, I think, I think, I really? think that these guys mean it. I think that there, it's not just Karen, actually, that, that a, a, contra- wow. a severe tr- contraction that's short and, you know, that's sharp and short-lived. Tim is raising his hand. I think an agreement would be much better for the markets. Than what? Because we know. Than, than not just having a recession? hanging over in, in a deeper, longer recession what? is What's a possibility. The difference? Why do you need it to be called a recession? Either your companies are growing or they're not growing, and you're going to invest on that. I mean, if I call it a recession, it doesn't really matter that much. You don't want to have a recession where, I'm sorry, you're raising your hand. You're being very polite. I'll be quiet now. Karen. No, no, no. Please finish. I'm just getting in line. I I was just saying that I just think that what you want to do, if you're Fed chair, if you're anybody, is you want to try to avoid a recession. You want to try to bring down inflation and attack it and not have a recession. We don't need a recession. We don't want a recession. It's the worst possible outcome for people on Main Street. And it's not a very good outcome for people on Wall Street. Karen? I, I disagree with the latter in that I understand why Jay Powell wouldn't want to have a recession. But it is possible that their desires and what Wall Street would trade better on are not the same thing, right? That they don't, we talk right now, you know, has the market trading down to forward his plan, which is fine, and that's what he should do. But I'm just saying I really think the market would rather have recession and look forward to when we're out of it than whether we half a percent GDP growth or does it touch negative or, you know, I think that I, I don't think that really helps us that we that we avoid the term recession by not technically having negative GDP for two quarters. Um, I don't t- think that. Yeah. Tim, last word here and then we got to go Well, again, I, I also think that Main Street right now is well ahead of Wall Street in terms of where they sit. The consumer has a job. I, I think technically the recession that happens in the economy is a bit of a reset in terms of if you can overcome inflation expectations and you can hit that with the, the sledgehammer and the bulldozer, that's more important right now. All right. Um, Steve, thank you, as always, for a spirited discussion. Welcome. Steve Leesman. All right, coming up, more on today's Fed decision. Former Dallas Fed President Richard Fisher will join us with his thoughts on the big rate hike. That's next. Plus, a new vaccine update, the FDA advisory vote that could impact millions of children. The details when Fast Money returns. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. 
crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Back to the top story of the day. The Fed raising rates to the highest level since the pandemic. Stocks rallying on this historic move. But our next guest warns the Fed has a way to go because inflation has metastasized. Richard Fisher served as Dallas Fed president and as a CNBC contributor. Uh, Richard, great to have you with us. Thank you, Melissa. So it's, obviously this I is... Lo- a- I love the panel, by the way. You guys are tough. I mean, we, weed whacker, sledgehammer. Bulldozer. Yeah, yeah. Bulldozer. Well, you're, you're tough. What do you think is the appropriate characterization of what the Fed is doing, considering a lot of the inflationary pressures that we're seeing across the economy is completely out of the Fed's control? Well, I'm not sure it's completely out of the Fed's control. I do disagree as much as I admire Jay, uh, Chairman Powell. The idea we don't have a wage price spiral. Talk to any CFO, any CEO of any business, public, private, small, medium or large, and they will tell you that they have trouble finding labor and they have to pay up for it. And once they get it, their productivity is lagging and they have to work on it over time. So I do think we do have a wage price spiral. But what is required here, as you mentioned, I do believe that uh, this cancer has of inflation has metastasized in our economy. It's going to take very harsh but also precise surgery. I think Powell was very frank, and I like his honesty in the way he, some of you call it uncertainty, but the fact that he has basically said, look, we're just going to have to watch this carefully. They're admitting their decision model, which is what I call the horse out of the barn model. That is, you wait to see if inflation is actually there, and then you act. It takes 18 months to work its way through the economy, the real economy. Markets react instantaneously. Businesses cannot do that. You have to figure out everything from lagging their payables, accelerating their receivables, all the way up through CapEx, HR policy, the works. And every company I talk to, and I listen to every earnings report that I can get my hands on or my ear on, are saying they're going to take more pricing. And they're going to project this as long as they can 
to protect their margins. Look at the NFIB survey that came out yesterday. More companies are talking about taking aggressive pricing. These are not listed companies, they're private companies. They employ half the people in this country that are workers. They create 80% of the jobs historically. They're all saying, going back 48 years of history, they're going to take more aggressive pricing action to protect their margins. So this is going to be a, a longer-term process. I wonder if 4% is going to be the top, because I think this is running longer, deeper, and the Fed has a role to play, although he's right, that is Powell's right, thanks to Russia, Ukraine, uh, COVID lockdowns and other things. Not everything's under their control. But what is under their control, they should act on, and they're going to have to act. And I think it's going to be harsh medicine, radical surgery. Mr. Fisher, I admire. Oh, I'm sorry. No, please go ahead. No, I was going to say I apologize. I, there was a bit of a delay. I, I just want to say, first of all, I admire you a great deal, your candor and your intellect for sure. This is a statement than a question. I think the wealth gap in this country that is undeniable, and it's in large part due to Fed policy over the last few decades, that chasm continues to grow. And inflation really only hurts the lower and the middle class. You know, Correct. the upper class can sort of laugh about what they're paying for gas. It really doesn't matter. That's my statement. My question is sort of this. I'm not I'm wrong all the time. If you watch Fast Money for the last 15 and a half years, you know I'm wrong a lot. So I have no problem with being wrong. My problem is the hubris associated with somehow thinking the inflation that they begged for for years, they could somehow control once they got it, because that, to me, is the height of hubris. Well, as I mentioned, it's a horse out of the barn approach. They adopted it at Jackson Hole in the summer conference uh, a little over two years ago. I criticized it then. I think it's a mistake because you wait to see whether or not inflation is transitory or not. You want to see the whites, the eyes of inflation, and then you act. Now, we made mistakes in the past. I served under Alan Greenspan and under Ben Bernanke and under Janet Yellen. Uh, and we made mistakes in the past by projecting improperly. We sometimes got it right, sometimes we got it wrong, but we took preemptive measures. This is post-measures, and therefore it takes longer. So perhaps you and I are on the same wavelength here. It's, it's going to be a very difficult thing to do. It hurts those dependent on fixed income, as we all know, and the lower income groups. Although in terms of some of the very rich that has been made recently, remember there are over 1,500 companies that have gone public in the last year that had nothing. And zero cost money allowed them to be financed. And I am worried, by the way, by credit. We're going to see some serious failures here and some serious corrections and some real stress. It's an opportunity for good investors like you guys, but it's going to create some real turbulence and volatility in the market and maybe uh, a serious situation that someone's going to have to cure either through uh, monetary policy, regulatory policy, whatever it may be. Are we talking uh, about a I systemic issue, Richard? I don't know if it's systemic, but I know this much. When money is free, you discount the present value of future cash flows mathematically to infinity. Mm -hmm. So look at what happened in the crypto space, in the fintech space, in the uh, MEME space, M-E-M-E. -E, I don't even know how to pronounce it anymore. But a lot of retail investors here, young people that just thought money was free forever, particularly those retail investors, I think are going to be seriously hurt. And that'll be interesting to see 
if it creates a major incident and whether or not the Fed needs to react or someone else needs to react to cure it. I think there's some black swans out there. That's my point. All right. Richard, it's always great to get your thoughts. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Well, I love the show, Melissa. I think you have a great panel. And all I can say after this is have a great day. Thank you. I got the best panel in the business. That's for sure. Richard, thanks. Good to see you. Thanks. Richard Fisher. Um, Karen, would you agree that there, you know, in terms of black swans, credit may be an issue, especially, I mean, it is true. We, we have a whole cadre of companies that came up during a no cost of capital period. They borrowed up the wazoo. They went, whatever it is. And now look what's happening to rates so quickly, too. Right. So what's happening to rates and also what's happening to valuations, of course, mm-hmm. because as rates go up and you discount infinity to a lot closer, you get a lot lower value for sure. But I think that that easy money's gone. We're going to, you know, the SPAC thing is blown up. And so I think we're going to see a lot more of that reckoning. But also we had a lot of companies that took on debt post pandemic that are now having higher costs. We talked about this yesterday with airlines. I don't know if you watched the show, Melissa, when you were not on, but we talked about that and how the cost of capital will eat its way through a lot of companies. But I feel like uh, that'll create some interesting opportunities. I'm short, high yield, have been for a while. I'm deep in a five o'clock feeding during the show, so no, I didn't, I didn't watch. Um, but Grasso, what do you t- think about in terms of black swans? I mean, you're the one who thinks the worst is to come for the economy. Yeah, I mean, you know, trying to guess a a black swan is probably a a pointless endeavor. But (laughs) if you're looking at a rising rate environment, you probably can't have a Super Bowl market to everything that Richard said and to everything we know on this desk. You're going to have Karen pointed out the end of the SPAC markets. You're going to have less IPOs, less deals. You probably could have more M&A people bottom fishing, trying to pick uh, companies that they think could be accretive. But you're not going to see a bull run. If you're not going to see a bull run, then you're going to see equity classes go go away. And that that could be or or just lose their luster down the food chain. So as far as a black swan event, it, it doesn't have to be a black swan event. This just could be a deterioration of the market down to Tim said a couple of levels earlier. I pointed out that Feb 2020 level of thirty three fifty. Maybe we go lower because we're in a rising rate environment. And I think that takes the gusto out of all investors, whether you're retail or institutions that have been lulled to sleep thinking that these profits are forever. The day the market bottom is in is when people sell their Apple, not when people sell their Zoom. Hasn't that been happening? I mean, just quickly, because we're out of time here in this segment, Guy, but we haven't talked about trading what is going on right now in response to the Fed. We talked about a short-term rally. What do you trade in a short-term rally? What we saw today, the sharpest gains in the Nasdaq 100 and the stuff that got got bombed out. And it was interesting to watch Apple basically do nothing as large-cap tech moved higher earlier in the day. And then finally, it caught a bid after the Fed decision. Yeah, I think Steve makes a good point about the generals, sort of mm-hmm. the last to go down. And Apple's clearly one of those generals. And look, it's very hard to be tactical in this environment. I get it. Tim talks about that all the time. And we try to do our best to help people navigate that. I think there's an opportunity here to be tactical in the form of some of these higher flying tech names for the next week or so, where I think you're going to see a pretty violent rally. I think what's going to wind up happening, and we're going to have this conversation quickly with Paul Sankey, I think energy 
will sort of fall by the wayside, which will then theoretically be your opportunity to get back in there. I know that's a lot, but that's how I'd be looking at the next week and a half, two weeks. All right. Coming up, a big warning for the energy industry. President Biden sounding off on big oil. So what does that mean for energy stocks? Paul Sankey will join us in just a few to drill into the details. But first, new details out of an FDA vaccine vote. The impact it could have on millions of children. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. America's youngest children could now become eligible for COVID shots as early as next week. An FDA advisory panel voted unanimously today to endorse Moderna and uh, Pfizer vaccines for kids five and under the stocks higher on the back of the vote. Meg Trell's got the latest on this decision. Meg. Hey, Melissa. Well, this would extend the protection of vaccines down to ages six months, the only group left not yet eligible for vaccination in the United States. And it comes after a unanimous vote yesterday from the committee uh, for Moderna's vaccine for ages six to 17. So if the FDA follows through and clears uh, these vaccines, it would essentially put Pfizer and Moderna on the same footing in terms of uh, having vaccines available. But these vaccines, as we're showing you here, are not identical for the youngest kids. The dosing regimen is different. Moderna's is two doses of a slightly higher dose, a quarter of the adult dose, uh, whereas Pfizer's is three doses of a much lower dose, just three micrograms each, which is a tenth of its adult dose. Uh, but for Moderna, you get the two doses four weeks apart. For Pfizer, because you have that third shot, it could take you almost three months to get uh, the full regimen completed there. Uh, Mel, whether this is expected to be a huge boon to these companies' bottom lines, probably not. Uh, only 18% of parents of kids in this age group are expected to go out and get the vaccine right away, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. Uh, and of course, these vaccines are already purchased. But we heard from a lot of parents who testified at the committee hearing today, uh, this, this advisory meeting today, how much they've been waiting for these vaccines and how long. Mel? Meg, are there any safety concerns in, in terms of some of the concerns for the, uh, for the vaccine doses for humans? For instance, the Moderna vaccine, the impact on young men um, and their heart health. Do those concerns extend to the children's doses? Well, they didn't see that here in the study, and it really does seem like that myocarditis risk, which is the main risk with these vaccines, is predominantly in teenagers, teenage boys, and young men. Uh, so they're not really seeing it in the much lower groups, but they are, of course, looking for that. Um, in terms of the overall safety, it did look good for both vaccines because the Moderna is a higher dose. It could potentially have more reactogenicity. Uh, we expect to hear more from the CDC when it meets Friday and Saturday, but important things to consider. All right. Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell. 
Guy, how do you trade this? I think you go to the airlines. I mean, I think, again, I think the second half of this year, these airlines are too cheap. I, my sense is the others would agree. They've been obviously taken to the woodshed for good reason. And I think there's going to be a real opportunity if you can just start nibbling on some of these airlines now. I think you're going to be re- rewarded with them in the fall. So the airlines is the first place I would look. Yeah, I mean, Megan mentioned this is not going to be huge to these companies' bottom lines. But this is the last phase of the reopening. Uh, you know, now practically every person in the United States can get a vaccine at this point. And so open up because <laughs> parents of young children can now take planes. They can now go to hotels. They can now do all sorts of things that they might have otherwise decided not to do, Steve. Yeah, that's uh, and the same theme is uh, what Guy had said. I, you switched over from uh, material objects, the services, and now you can look at the cruise lines. You can look at the airlines. You could buy those. And, and even if you, you had asked me one time, even if we're heading towards a recession, this is where people are going to allocate what's left of their money before they start pulling the reins back because they've made these reservations a little bit earlier. So I don't think you want to be an investor in Moderna. If you want to buy a vaccine company, you could buy Pfizer because I think they have a little bit more uh, of a broader base. But I would go with cruise lines adding to what Guy said about the airlines. Yeah, Tim. First of all, Pfizer down 20 percent off of those highs, uh, trades at around 11 times. Uh, I, I think very attractive. And I think you've taken a lot of the, the fluff off of that one. I, you know, I, let's not forget about casinos. And I have to point out that I love Las Vegas Sands six months ago. Uh, I have to love it here. I still think, again, the cash and the balance sheet, they're positioning in Singapore. It's not just a China story. I think they're very well positioned to be opportunistic in the online gaming, uh, online sports betting. And, and so I, and I just think that the China lockdowns, uh, we talk about the, you know, the forever uh, you know, the forever lockdown story in China. At some point, that is a major, major tailwind to companies like LVS. All right. Coming up, crude sliding as President Biden calls out U.S. oil companies, what he says they need to do to battle rising gas prices. And Paul Sankey of Sankey Research is joining us to lay out his take on all of this, his top concerns for the space. Next, you're watching Fast Money. We are back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Oil falling almost 3% today as the Biden administration tries to pin the blame for record oil and gas prices on big oil. The president saying in letters to the energy companies that historically high refinery profit margins being passed directly onto American families are not acceptable. Let's bring in Paul Sankey of Sankey Research. He joined us on the Fast Line. Paul, um, the administration this afternoon went as far as to say that it is the company's patriotic duty to increase supplies and cut consumer costs. Is there a political risk to this group that should be priced into the stocks at this point? Uh, Yeah, I think it's being priced in. I mean, there's just so much uncertainty with all this nonsense. If you saw the ExxonMobil letter in response, they literally might as well have, have written, you know, whatever. Because obviously now calling for more refining throughput is ridiculous when margins are as high as they are. You know, the companies are obviously going to be producing as much as they possibly can. Hey, Paul, it's Steve Grasso. Lo- love your work. It seems like this is a bunch of uh, smoke and mirrors for me when we're looking at Biden and big oil and Russia and Ukraine. Oh, those, are, those are the elephants in the room. Where does Iran fit into this with the no nuclear deal, nuclear deal, enriching uranium, uh, exporting more barrels than they were under Trump? It seems like they're a bit of a canary in the coal mine. What does it mean for the space? 
Well, I think that, yes, as you say, there's more Iranian barrels on the market because essentially the Biden administration is not pursuing Iran not to export. You know, they're sort of quietly letting them export more oil. And this gives rise to actually it's kind of the answer to the last time I was on and I didn't really answer Tim, which is to say there's no spare capacity really in global oil supply either. Uh, we had the, the Secretary General of OPEC the other day saying he thinks there's 2% spare capacity, which with China out is effectively zero. So Iran is more in the market than you might think. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a marginal thing that's probably not going to make much difference, even if the Iranians begin to get their act together. Hey, Paul, it's Tim. So I, I, we don't have time to do this. I'll make a statement, then ask a question. But I, how about the Biden energy policy as being really that laid the foundation for this? And then, yeah, Russia and dynamics, those are the spark. But we went into this with $85 oil, and that was, uh, you know, up 30 percent on his watch. My question is more uh, bottom up related to companies and, and some of the M&A we're starting to see. Talk about that underpinning uh, companies you think might be ripe for some type of a takeout uh, M&A. And again, the Continental deal yesterday wasn't a big surprise, but it was exciting. Yeah, and what you're seeing here is a big arbitrage between the public valuations, that is to say the equity prices of these companies, compared to private valuations. And that's why Continental has taken itself private. So we can see that happening. I mean, at the moment, the public pressure on these companies just, you know, doesn't make sense compared to the amount of profit that they're making for no really reason of any nefarious behavior. So ultimately, we could see a lot more take private. Some of the other names would be a Coffeeville Refining. You know, I think we're very interested in Chesapeake with a lot of resource. There's a few names out there. And of course, Buffett getting into Oxy could keep going. So that's another one which comes up on the radar further to your question. Paul, thanks for your thoughts. Good to talk to you. Paul, thank you. Thank you, Research. Guy, you had mentioned if there's a pullback in oil stocks, you'd get in there. So what's top on your list? Yeah, the OIH and specifically names like Schlumberger and Halliburton, but some of these levered names as well. PSX is at the top of that list. It makes perfect sense. And again, I mean, everybody's hit the nail on the head. Demonizing energy companies might be politically expedient, but it doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. And nor does releasing energy crude from the SPR make a whole hell of a lot of sense. The fundamentals are such that oil's going higher. There are going to be some speed bumps along the way. This is one of them. But I think a month from now, we're going to be talking about $130 crude and OIH north of 300 again. On the options front, one trader is betting that oil producers could be in some big trouble. Tony Zane joins us with the action. Tony. Yeah, Melissa, some of these energy shares are becoming a way to play a leverage view here on crude. And XOP, the S&P Oil and Gas Exploration ETF, traded fairly actively today, 1.2 times the average daily volume. And one trader took out 1,500 contracts of the August 120 puts for an average price of about $3.40. That's about a half a million dollars in premium for put options that are more than 20% out of the money. So this is really something that we've seen a lot from institutions buying these really far out of the money put options, perhaps either as a tail hedge against a long equity position or outright taking a bearish position here in oil and gas stocks. All right, Tony, thanks. Tony Zhang for more options action. Be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time coming up. Powell's millennial advice, the warning he has for first time home buyers that could have a big impact on the housing market. We got the details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Let's take another look at how stocks close out the day after the Fed's biggest rate hike since 1994. The S&P up almost a half, a half a percent. 
uh, a percent and a half, I should say. Dow adding more than 300 points. The Nasdaq up more than two and a half percent. Tomorrow, we will get earnings from Kroger before the bell. Jobless claims and housing starts. Meantime, much more Fast Money right after this break. Welcome back to Fast Money. Near the end, actually it was the very end of his press conference today, Jerome Powell had a stark warning for millennial home buyers. If you're a home buyer, somebody or a young person looking to buy a home, you need a bit of a reset. We need to get back to a place where supply and demand are back together and where inflation is down low again and mortgages are, mortgage rates are low again. It's been a rough ride for housing-related stocks this year. Names like D.R. Horton, Lennar, Sherwin-Williams, all hitting new 52-week lows today. I don't know. When I heard that, Karen, I read it as he's saying to millennials to wait. Mm-hmm. I think, I think he is. I think we talk about this all the time. A byproduct of what they're trying to do would be to cool the housing market, which on its own might not be a great thing, but is maybe a necessary thing. And also think about this. If there are fewer transactions, there's less mortgage-backed securities coming to market because the Fed's going to be trying to get rid of theirs. And as rates have gone up, the duration of the mortgage backs that they own is getting longer. So they're actually, those are getting longer. So they have a lot to go, right, as, as they start QT. So also, I think he just wants to cool this supply, you know, cool the demand dynamic. I get it. Um, it's tough medicine, but I think he do, he's doing the right thing. Tim, you mentioned Home Depot is one that you can get behind still. What, what makes the difference between Home Depot and some of the other stocks like a Sherwin-Williams? Why is Home Depot more durable in this environment? Well, I, I just think the, the diversity of the offering, the fact it's a duopoly with Lowe's. I mean, I think they have a lot of pricing power. And I actually think inflation in some sense, like a retailer, actually helps their top line uh, on valuation, you know, 16, 17, 17 times next year is, is, is actually below the five-year average on this company. This is a company that uh, I just think, you know, you look at where we are and, and those people that do have houses aren't going anywhere. Uh, if anything, they're going to be dumping more money into their house. There's 11 trillion in tappable mortgage equity uh, in this country right now. We just got some numbers out on the size of the housing market and the overall value. It's, it's almost 28 trillion now, up 20 percent in the first quarter. I, I think the housing market's got a bullseye on its back from from Jerome Powell and co. And and it probably should. So, uh, you know, I, I do think, though, there are parts of this where you really can can invest like, I you know, restoration's down 70 percent. This is a stock that also uh, is trading at, you know, a, a, a I don't know, seven or eight multiple for next year um, that said they're not going to be discounting. That does have their inventory uh, corrected. So I think a lot of the pullback here and clearly with restoration, it was a pull forward. I think you've priced in a lot of pain in some of these home builders uh, didn't go up on a day when rates went down 20 percent. That tells you something. All right. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Karen Feinerman. Yes, I had a nice gift from D.E. Shaw on FedEx. It's a 15% since yesterday morning. I got to sell some upside calls against it, even though I like it. Tim Seymour. You know I'm a buyer of this energy pullback. EOG back to the 50-day, somewhere around these levels. I think you actually get back into one of the best integrated EOGs. Steve Grasso. Kroger, probably a little long in the tooth in the bull story, but uh, it still looks bullish to me on a chart. I think you play it on earnings tomorrow, get a little a little bit of a quick trade out of it. Guy Adami. Great to have you back, Melms. Uh, Wynn Resorts, that comes out W-Y-N-N. 
right. Thank you all for watching Fast to See back here tomorrow at 5 for more. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.